Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 2 on the Man Called Christ Chapter 2 The Riddles of the Gospel Part 2 But whatever be the answer, the gospel as it stands is almost a book of riddles. First, a man reading the gospel sayings would not find platitudes. If he had read, even in the most respectful spirit, the majority of ancient philosophers and of modern moralists, he would appreciate the unique importance of saying that he did not find platitudes. It is more than can be said even of Plato. It is much more than can be said of Epictetus, or Seneca, or Marcus Aurelius, or Apollonius of Tyana. And it is immeasurably more than can be said of most of the agnostic moralists and the preachers of the ethical societies, with their songs of service and their religion of brotherhood. The morality of most moralists, ancient and modern, has been one solid and polished cataract of platitudes flowing forever and ever. That would certainly not be the impression of the imaginary independent outsider studying the New Testament. He would be conscious of nothing so commonplace, and in a sense of nothing so continuous, as that stream. He would find a number of strange claims that might sound like the claim to be the brother of the sun and moon, a number of very startling pieces of advice, a number of stunning rebukes, a number of strangely beautiful stories. He would see some very gigantesque figures of speech about the impossibility of threading a needle with a camel, or the possibility of throwing a mountain into the sea. He would see a number of very daring simplifications of the difficulties of life like the advice to shine upon everybody indifferently, as does the sunshine, or not to worry about the future any more than the birds. He would find, on the other hand, some passages of almost impenetrable darkness, so far as he is concerned, such as the moral of the parable of the unjust steward. Some of these things might strike him as fables, and some as truths, but none as truisms. For instance, he would not find the ordinary platitudes in favor of peace. He would find several paradoxes in favor of peace. He would find several ideals of non-resistance, which taken as they stand would be rather too pacific for any pacifist. He would be told in one passage to treat a robber not with passive resistance, but rather with positive and enthusiastic encouragement if the terms be taken literally, heaping up gifts upon the man who had stolen goods. But he would not find a word of all that obvious rhetoric against war which has filled countless books and odes and orations. Not a word about the wickedness of war, the wastefulness of war, the appalling scale of the slaughter in war, and all the rest of the familiar frenzy. Indeed, not a word about war at all. There is nothing that throws any particular light on Christ's attitude towards organized warfare.
except that he seems to have been rather fond of Roman soldiers. Indeed, it is another perplexity, speaking from the same external and human standpoint, that he seems to have got on much better with Romans than he did with Jews. But the question here is a certain tone to be appreciated by merely reading a certain text, and we might give any number of instances of it. The statement that the meek shall inherit the earth is very far from being a meek statement. I mean, it is not meek in the ordinary sense of mild and moderate and inoffensive. To justify it, it would be necessary to go very deep into history and anticipate things undreamed of then, and by many unrealized even now, such as the way in which the mystical monks reclaimed the lands which the practical kings had lost. If it was a truth at all, it was because it was a prophecy, but certainly it was not a truth in the sense of a truism. The blessing upon the meek would seem to be a very violent statement, in the sense of doing violence to reason and probability. And with this we come to another important stage in the speculation. As a prophecy, it really was fulfilled, but it was only fulfilled long afterwards. The monasteries were the most practical and prosperous estates and experiments in reconstruction after the barbaric deluge. The meek did really inherit the earth. But nobody could have known anything of the sort at the time, unless indeed there was one who knew. Something of the same thing may be said about the incident of Martha and Mary which has been interpreted in retrospect and from the inside by the mystics of the Christian contemplative life. But it was not at all an obvious view of it. And most moralists, ancient and modern, could be trusted to make a rush for the obvious. What torrents of effortless eloquence would have flowed from them to swell any slight superiority on the part of Martha? What splendid sermons about the joy of service, and the gospel of work, and the world left better than we found it, and generally all the ten thousand platitudes that can be uttered in favor of taking trouble by people who need take no trouble to utter them. If in Mary the mystic and child of love, Christ was guarding the seed of something more subtle, who was likely to understand it at the time? Nobody else could have seen Claire and Catherine and Teresa shining above the little roof at Bethany. It is so in another way, with that magnificent menace about bringing into the world a sword to sunder and divide. Nobody could have guessed then either how it could be fulfilled or how it could be justified. Indeed, some free thinkers are still so simple as to fall into the trap and be shocked at a phrase so deliberately defiant. They actually complain of the paradox for not being a platitude. But the point here is that if we could read the gospel reports as things as new as newspaper reports, they would puzzle us and perhaps terrify us much more than the same things as developed by historical Christianity. For instance, Christ, after a clear allusion to the eunuchs of eastern courts, said there would be eunuchs of the kingdom of heaven. If this does not mean the voluntary enthusiasm of virginity, 
it could only be made to mean something much more unnatural or uncouth. It is the historical religion that humanizes it for us by experience of Franciscans or of Sisters of Mercy. The mere statement standing by itself might very well suggest a rather dehumanized atmosphere. The sinister and inhuman silence of the Asiatic harem and divan. This is but one instance out of scores. But the moral is that the Christ of the Gospel might actually seem more strange and terrible than the Christ of the Church. I am dwelling on the dark, or dazzling, or defiant or mysterious side of the Gospel words, not because they had not obviously a more obvious and popular side, but because this is the answer to a common criticism on a vital point. The freethinker frequently says that Jesus of Nazareth was a man of his time, even if he was in advance of his time, and that we cannot accept his ethics as final for humanity. The freethinker then goes on to criticize his ethics, saying plausibly enough that men cannot turn the other cheek, or that they must take thought for the morrow, or that the self-denial is too ascetic, or the monogamy too severe. But the zealots and the legionaries did not turn the other cheek any more than we do, if so much. The Jewish traders and Roman tax-gatherers took thought for the morrow as much as we, if not more. We cannot pretend to be abandoning the morality of the past for one more suited to the present. It is certainly not the morality of another age, but it might be of another world. In short, we can say that these ideals are impossible in themselves. Exactly what we cannot say is that they are impossible for us. They are rather notably marked by a mysticism which, if it be a sort of madness, would always have struck the same sort of people as mad. Take, for instance, the case of marriage and the relations of the sexes. It might very well have been true that a Galilean teacher taught things natural to a Galilean environment, but it is not. It might rationally be expected that a man in the time of Tiberius would have advanced a view conditioned by the time of Tiberius, but he did not. What he advanced was something quite different, something very difficult, but something no more difficult now than it was then. When for instance, Muhammad made his polygamous compromise. We may reasonably say that it was conditioned by a polygamous society. When he allowed a man four wives, he was really doing something suited to the circumstances, which might have been less suited to other circumstances. Nobody will pretend that the four wives were like the four winds, something seemingly a part of the order of nature. Nobody will say that the figure four was written forever in stars upon the sky. But neither will anyone say that the figure four is an inconceivable ideal, that it is beyond the power of the mind of man to count up to four, or to count the number of his wives and see whether it amounts to four. It is a practical compromise carrying with it the character of a particular society. If Mohammed had been born in Acton in the 19th century, 
we may well doubt whether he would instantly have filled that suburb with harems of four wives apiece. As he was born in Arabia in the 6th century, he did, in his conjugal arrangements, suggest the conditions of Arabia in the 6th century. But Christ, in his view of marriage, does not in the least suggest the conditions of Palestine in the 1st century. He does not suggest anything at all except the sacramental view of marriage as developed long afterwards by the Catholic Church. It was quite as difficult for people then as for people now. It was much more puzzling to people then than to people now. Jews and Romans and Greeks did not believe and did not even understand enough to disbelieve the mystical idea that the man and the woman had become one sacramental substance. We may think it an incredible or impossible ideal, but we cannot think it any more incredible or impossible than they would have thought it. In other words, whatever else is true, it is not true that the controversy has been altered by time. Whatever else is true, it is emphatically not true that the ideas of Jesus of Nazareth were suitable to his time, but are no longer suitable to our time. Exactly how suitable they were to his time is perhaps suggested in the end of his story. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>